all the, all the songs on the CD uh, I've written, uh, and I, I, mean, I started playing guitar when I was first grade. I probably wrote about 25 love songs from first grade through college. <laughs> then I got saved, and all of a sudden it was Christian songs. And uh, about 12, 13 years ago, I started a church in 1998 in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And uh, I became, uh, when the guy left us who was doing music, and another guy, one of my seminary students, took over being the pastor, and I took over being the worship leader. And we started in the projects. And we started with the poor people. And we had a lot of functionally illiterate people who didn't know how to read. So we started writing songs to put doctrine in their heads. And so that's, that's what that CD actually is. And, and there are actually a couple good songs on the CD, just so you know. Um, I call this song my angry song. Uh, because I wrote it in response, I was sitting in my study at the seminary, and I had this cult group send me a book called The Shepherd of Hermas. It's one of the early church fathers. And told me to substitute that in my seminary classes for the book of Revelation. You know, stick that in the Bible, take the book of Revelation out. And I, I wasn't very happy with that uh, thought, so I wrote this song. And it's an exposition of Revelation 19, as you uh, know. And we're going to look at that here uh, in just a minute. The uh, third session of our notes, the special issues in the doctrine of hell, and there are two. This thing that I want to call uh, theodicy. Uh, advance to the next slide. Theodicy in the book of Revelation is number one. Number two is uh, purgatory. And so we'll see how, the, how long the first one goes. Uh, I may want to stop and have questions after the first one just to make sure we have time for questions, uh, and, then, um, and then do the uh, purgatory discussion if we have that at the end. I consider the, the first discussion much more important than the purgatory uh, discussion. But uh, I have a picture of Nicholas Kristof. Has anyone here read any of his stuff in the New York Times? Do you, anybody pay attention to the names of the guys you read? Uh, I'm, I'm sure that the New York Times is everyone's favorite newspaper here, right? I think you find the, the devil where he is on the spectrum, and the New York Times is to the left of him. Okay, that's usually where that goes. Every now and then they get it right, but most of the time you go, where are they coming from? Well, Nicholas Kristof uh, is an editor for the New York Times who oftentimes writes in the area of religion. And he has written many, uh, in the last 10 years, written many articles, maybe two or three a year, attacking the pre-trib rapture position. You know, he views us as, um, we don't want things to get better. Because if things get better, then it'll slow down Jesus coming back. So you set on our thumbs, don't fix anything. We want things to get really bad so that Jesus will come back. You know, that's the way it's portrayed. I think that's a, a caricature of what we really believe. We really do believe we ought to love people and solve problems around us and do our best. We really do that. Uh, we don't believe in, well, why don't we, as let's just trash the planet and, you know, do everything we can. To, you know, we don't believe that. And so I, I think that's a little overdone. But it's interesting. Um, he has 
discussion about the harshness of God. Now, I give the definition of theodicy. That may be a word you're not familiar with. It's a simple word. It just means defending the ways of God to man. Defending the ways of God to man. That's all it is. It's basically an apologetics term. In the next slide, I have a quote from one of his articles where he attacks Tim LaHaye for a Left Behind series. He said, I'd forgotten the passage in the Bible about how Jesus intends to roast everyone from the Good Samaritan to Gandhi in everlasting fire simply because they weren't born-again Christians. That's how the lost world looks at it. And he actually portrays Tim LaHaye as actually being excited and celebrating the fact that people were pitched into hell. Do we celebrate that? No, I don't think Tim LaHaye does either. He just records the facts of Scripture. He does not celebrate that. You know the story of the, the church that was calling a pastor and they got two guys, they did a beauty pageant, had, had a runoff with two guys. And they asked him, they asked him to both preach on hell. Okay. And afterwards, they chose one guy overwhelmingly. They preached the same passage, same topic. And somebody asked him, why did you choose that guy over the other guy? He said, well, the other guy preached on hell like he was glad we were, people were going there. This guy preached on hell with a tear in his heart. And that's where we should be. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I mean, we can celebrate the fact that God is right in doing things, but that's different than emotionally reveling in, uh, in you know, enjoyment in the pain of others. Well, let's, let's respond a little bit to this statement by uh, Nicholas Kristof. When you read that, do you think he's read the Bible? <laughs> okay, who is it that's uh, in hell, according to him? Um, see, I think he thinks that Christians say, well, Gandhi's in hell. Okay, Gandhi's a Hindu, rejected Jesus, I understand that. But where do you get the Good Samaritan? You know, he, he throws out the Good Samaritan as somebody that's going to be in hell. Wait, wait a minute. Has he read the Bible? No, he hasn't read the Bible. And that story of the Good Samaritan has absolutely nothing to do with hell or eternal life or any of those things. So I think he shows a little bit of his ignorance, but that's what you find. And you need to do that. You need to read USA Today, one of the religion writers, uh, Tom Cratenmaker. He's an agnostic at best, maybe an atheist. I've interacted with him some. I wrote an article responding to a book he wrote called Evangelicals and Sports. He's tired of all the uh, Christian football players in the NFL kneeling down in the end zone. Because it shouldn't be the fellowship of Christian athletes. It ought to be the fellowship of religious athletes. Et cetera, et cetera. You know, he has a whole book on this. So I wrote a very lengthy review of the book, and I sent it to him, and we dialogued back and forth about that. And he basically says, and this one comes down to hell... 
He basically says this. Says, I, see, we're, we're a pluralistic country. That means anybody can believe anything, right? And he says, I, I don't want to throw the evangelicals away from the table of sports ministries. But when they come, I want them to leave three things behind. What are those three things? Jesus. Okay, that's a biggie. Okay, Jesus. Okay, that's close. Hell. She said evangelism. Hell. Jesus and hell. And personal salvation. Now, what's he saying? Okay, I don't mind if the evangelicals have a place at the table of discussion in our society as long as they quit being evangelicals. What kind of pluralism is that? In my article, I challenged him. That's not pluralism. You parade yourself as a pluralist, but you can't consistently do that with people who absolutely believe differently than you. And he wrote back to me in an email and said, you know, I hadn't thought about that before. I'm going to think about that. We ought to speak up when we get the chance. Um, now, I spoke up in that case because he found me. I put a blog, I have a blog, www.our-hope.org, and I put a little blurb up that I was going to be reviewing that book, and he has a sniffer out there that finds when people mention him. So I got an email from him about that. You know, be fair. <laughs> you know, all those things, so... Uh, he initiated the conversation, and, uh, and then we had a, a good discussion, you know, an open door to talk to an agnostic or atheist. Uh, I think I lean toward him being an atheist because he has shown up with some atheist blogs being interviewed. So, Tom Creightonmaker, K-R-A-T-T-E-N-E-N-M-A-C-E-R, something like that. Tom Creightonmaker. And then Nicholas Kristof is the New York Times version of the USA Today version there. Um, so his, his quote doesn't really get it right. And so, but I want to give a response here because here's what people think. The harshness, what, and the question does emerge, and it is a question that naturally emerges. Atheists don't have to be really, really hateful and mean and anti-Christian and bigoted toward us to raise this question. It naturally comes to your mind what gives God the right to do this? That's a fair question. And the book of Revelation gives us an answer. Okay, And uh, so let's look at Revelation 19 and 20. If you've got your Bibles, let's go there. Now I'm kind of going to go backwards through the book. So you guys need to stay with me here. Let's look at it in verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The warrior lamb coming back to judge and kill. Notice what the very next verse says. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God. Very strong judgment language that may, in fact, be quite literal. And then he destroys people. And the false prophet and the beast, the Antichrist, are pitched alive. They don't even die. They're pitched alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur in verse 20. And then the birds gorge themselves on the flesh of everybody else. Then you come to chapter 20 and you have the thousand years, Satan bound for a while and let loose. And then Satan himself is cast into the lake of fire. Then we have the great white throne judgment and those who reject God, those who are lost, are in the lake of fire in the end. It's a very natural question and it's actually raised within the book of Revelation. What gives God the right to do this? If you look back in chapter 19, the first verse. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true, notice this, true and just are his judgments. What does that mean? That God's judgments are true and just. He's just destroyed Babylon. He's about to destroy everyone else, the second coming. True and just. We might say that true and right. You are right when you judge. That's what the book of Revelation says here. In the midst of all this negative, God, you're right. Then if you go back uh, to chapter uh, 16, in our backward thumbnail sketch of these things, 16, 4 to 7, we're talking about the, the bowls of God's wrath, the judgment bowls or vials. In verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments. So God, you are right in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, Notice these words, as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just. Have you seen this before? True and just are your judgments. True and right. God, you're right in pouring out the judgments. You're right in pouring out 
this third bold judgment, you are right. And of course, when we ask the question, what gives God the right to do these things, this passage tells us they, the unbelievers, deserve it. So it raises the question that we talked about earlier about the nature of sin, which also in turn brings up the nature of God. These folks deserve all this. That's what God, what gives God the right to do this. And then you go back to chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Just and right are your ways. King of the ages, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, it's interesting. The book of Revelation portrays this, I think, from God's point of view, as right. Our culture looks at these things from a different perspective. Our culture looks at it from man's point of view. We'll we'll summarize that here in just a minute. So, we have one reason, one biblical response in a theodicy here. Defending the ways of God to man. What gives God the right to to do this? All these bad things in the book of Revelation. One answer is the people, the unbelievers, deserve it. The second answer, which is the next slide, is that God is the creator. You go back to Revelation 4. Now, Revelation 4 and 5 are the two most important chapters in the book of Revelation, in my opinion. There's a lot in there about worship, but that's not the main point of these chapters. The main point of these chapters, in my view, is a theodicy. It's defending the ways of God to man. And, of course, we have here, uh, when you come down to verse number 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around Even under his wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And you cannot cry holy if you're assigning blame to whatever it is you're calling holy. Then it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? You created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Paul says some things similar in Romans chapter 9. God, who is the creator, has the right to do with his creation whatever he decides to do. As long as he is consistent with who he is. And of course, who decides that? Him. Not Al Jazeera. Not CNN. 
not Nicholas Kristoff, but him. He is the creator. But the place where it is absolutely the clearest is in the next point. Let's go to the next slide. Jesus, who is God in the book of Revelation, is the Redeemer. Jesus is the Lamb of God who sits on the throne of God in the book of Revelation. He is God. And in chapter 5, when we begin the very, be- the very beginning, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Now this is a crucial question. You need to understand this. The scroll has all the judgments written on it in the book of Revelation. And so as he takes the seals off, he is unleashing the content of that soul in real life. So all these things happen. And the question here is, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who's worthy to do that? But says, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able, he's qualified, to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. What qualified Jesus to be the one who could open that scroll? He's the Redeemer. I love that artist rendition there. I can't claim that as mine. You may have seen that before. I love that. He's got the scroll. He's opening the scroll. And he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the coming king. But what qualifies him, he's the lamb Standing as if slain. This is where the cross comes into our discussion. That Jesus died for our sins. And that Jesus made a way out. For all those who are in hell today, Jesus made a way out. Now, I don't want to get into debates over the limited versus unlimited atonement. Let's, that'll take us a far afield. But the point is, Jesus has made a provision Jesus died on the cross. He has qualified himself to be the one who can pour out all those things upon the earth and have a good conscience about it himself. Now, let's stop and maybe look at a couple things related to that uh, to wrap up this part of the discussion. In the next slide, God has certain prerogatives that you and I do not have. God has certain prerogatives that you and I don't have. Now, if I walked up to some of you, I found a table here, and I went to that table, and I, I told all of you to bow down and worship me. You'd be horrified by that. And you should be. Why is that? I know I'm a good guy. But but why is that? I don't have the right to ask you to do that. 
I don't have the divine power. Then if you then if you said no, then I just kill you. Be like a Muslim, kill you. Do I have the right to do that? No. But God's a different story. See, and sometimes I think see, that we take divine prerogatives and we look at them as if they're a man's prerogatives. My second point up here relates to that. Those who reject eternal hell due to its harshness view things from a man-centered viewpoint and not from a God-centered viewpoint. They look at these divine prerogatives and they look at them as overly harsh because they're looking at them as a man would look at them instead of how God views them. God does have the right to judge people. He's the creator and he's the redeemer. And those chapters 4 and 5 introduce that tribulation period. All those things including the final judgment when Jesus comes which sets up chapter 20 and the lake of fire. God and Jesus have the right to execute that judgment. It is a divine prerogative that cannot be carried out by any man or woman. Only God and Jesus. So, to summarize, in defending the ways of God to man, and especially in this harshness, we know what gives God the right to do this. They deserve it. God is the creator. And God is the redeemer through Jesus. I sometimes don't think we make enough of those things. The nature of sin, they deserve it. And then the nature of God, who is Jesus? Who is God, creator and the redeemer? I think those areas give us ways to talk to people and challenge their thinking when they struggle about the harsh elements in God's judging ways. Okay, are there any other questions? Yes. Uh, why, why does it use the phrase lake for with lake of fire? It doesn't tell us why lake. I mean, it does. there is a vivid picture that that brings. You know, it doesn't say ball of fire, so it's not like a planet maybe or a sun, but lake of fire, but a sun would... Uh, a lake of fire could apply to that, I suppose. Um, so I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I mean, it just, it's just a good image. I mean, it does portray the reality. It helps us to visualize it. And that's what God's trying to do. He's trying to help us visualize it. Yes? Okay. Um, you know, the why am the people who died before Jesus, the good and the bad and the ugly, if I caught that well? Yes. Okay. Well, let me deal with the good and the bad. I'll leave the ugly to somebody else. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, it's, it's really no different. Uh, there's the question did the uh, Old Testament saints, when they died, did they go in the underworld, you know, the netherworld under the earth, and that Sheol is this um, down under place? You do have when they when uh, the witch of Endor and 
episode, they do call Samuel up, which means he was down, or perhaps. But it's also possible that uh, all that's just a maybe a figurative way of saying things and that it's still heaven, in a sense, for the good guys and the netherworld for the bad guys. It's hard to say because that word sheol is such a slippery word. We talked about that. So we don't know. But we do know this, that the saved and the lost, both of Old Testament or New Testament, are all raised from the dead. You know, the saved church saints who have died are raised at the rapture. The saved Old Testament saints and trib saints are raised at the end of the trib, Daniel 12, 2. And the lost people are raised in Revelation 20 at the end of the thousand years. They're raised, of course, unglorified. We don't really know. There's not a lot of discussion as to the nature of that resuscitation. So we know those things to be true. Uh, beyond that, you know, their souls were in either the netherworld or they're up in heaven, and their souls are reunited for those who are saved. The lost in the netherworld and Hades reunited with their bodies later when they're raised from the dead. So there's not a whole lot, of, there's not a big difference between New Testament saints and Old Testament saints, in my view. Yes? How was the how what what is accounted for righteousness for those pre-cross? I think was her question, actually. Okay. And so you're then asking they me, die. Uh, you're so asking, it's a soteriological question. Right. So you're asking me how Old Testament saints got saved? Is that that's what you wanted? Yes. They got saved by grace through faith in the coming Messiah. All the way back to Genesis three fifteen, there's a prediction of a coming one who would deal with sin. And there's a gradual unfolding of knowledge about him. So at every step of the way in history, not everybody understands fully everything about him. Like now, we know his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and he died on a Roman cross. They didn't know that 800 years before Jesus. But they knew a Messiah was coming, and they knew he was coming uh, at certain points along the timeline. They knew he was coming to die. Uh, in the 8th century, they knew Isaiah predicted he would come and die. Isaiah 53. We knew in the uh, 6th century B.C., Daniel, Messiah is coming to be cut off and die. So they knew Messiah was coming to die. And uh, that prediction all the way from Genesis 3.15 in seed form there, there's coming one uh, who will deal with sin. And they were trusting looking ahead. We trust looking back. But it's the same. Salvation is by grace through faith in any dispensation. I do not believe Old Testament saints are saved differently than New Testament saints. Yeah, and, and also it's, it says in James that um, Abraham was saved, or he, he believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it's, you know, used in the New Testament of someone in the Old Testament believing the same way we believe now. Yeah, the context of the statement about Abraham is interesting because in the Old Testament, what's the content of what he believes in the Genesis 15, 6 statement? It's, it's not information about the death of Messiah in that particular context. But I think that's behind everything in the whole storyline, starting with Genesis 3.15, the prediction Messiah was coming to deal with sin. 
Yes, sir. When it says that the, that the dead small grave will stand before the judgment seat. When it says the dead small and great will stand before the judgment seat and the books will be open. To be standing there, does that imply glorified bodies for everyone because they're able to actually be in the presence of God for judgment? No. No, I don't think. Um, you know, Satan, the, spirit, the fallen angels in Job have access to God and they don't have glorified bodies. So I'm not sure I would press that. I just mean for human beings. Yeah, but still, I mean, there's not a metaphysical requirement for anybody to have a glorified body to be in the presence of God. I think it's important for a person to have glorified bodies. Uh, For example, Elijah went to heaven. You know, was he glorified? Some people think not because he's coming back to get killed. As one of the two witnesses, some people think that. Um, So I don't think it's a requirement for humans. It's a requirement for them in order to ultimately have their um, their ultimate glorification. But, but other than that, there's no need for that. To be there and pronounce judgment by God, they just have to have resuscitated bodies of some sort. And of course, what is, you know, are there bodies when they're pitched into hell? Do they, do the lake of fire, do they, are they consumed? No, we believe, uh, we're not annihilationists, so we believe uh, there's torture and torment forever. There's a burning that lasts forever like the burning bush. So their bodies are different than their bodies were before they were resuscitated. But I, I don't know that I would, I certainly wouldn't use that term glorified for that condition. Because glorification is a term that implies uh, total elimination of sin, and I don't think that happens with those people. You follow me? Aaron? Absent, absent from the body, present with Christ. I don't understand, you know, on your, what we showed on the screen before, a person dies and then there's this intermediate state and then there's heaven, hell. Can you explain that intermediate state a little bit more? I'm yeah. not familiar with that. Yeah. Um. Actually, in the purgatory discussion, I have some more slides for that. But let me, let's define it first. The intermediate state is the, the time from when you die until the resurrection. For believers, that's from the time we die until Jesus comes to rapture the church for us. So he comes to rapture the church. Now, where are our souls during that time? Our souls are in heaven with Jesus. Our bodies are in the grave. They're separated. Okay? And when Jesus comes back, he's bringing our souls with him to be reunited to our resurrected bodies at the rapture. That is, if we have died before the rapture. So that intermediate state is just a general designation for that time between the time I die and the resurrection. For a lost person, that time's longer than the time they die until the great white throne judgment. Okay? And they're, for lost people, their souls are in Hades, you know, hell. Uh, their, their bodies are in the grave. Yes. Yes, I think so. In the intermediate state, 
in Luke 16, Jesus is talking about Hades. He's talking about the intermediate state. Lazarus and the beggar died. And it's a present reality. You know, that would occur in their culture. And he describes it as punishment right then okay. for them. Yeah. That's not, there's not any soul sleep. So, so those who get raptured do not go through the intermediate state. Is that correct? That's correct, and I'm praying for that. <laughs> yes. I prefer the upper taker to the undertaker any day. Yes. Yeah, uh, one of the things that's popular today, uh, at least seems to be, especially even within the Christian community, are reading books about people who have either gone to heaven or gone to hell, come back and write about it. You don't see a whole lot written about it from the Christian perspective. Uh, personally, I, I find it very, I'm very skeptical. Uh, what kind of validity or lack of validity have you found in any of that? Um, you know, wherever you are, I'm skeptical on steroids. I just don't put any credence in that. And the, the lack, you know, I think in all the years I've been a minister, it's over 30 years, I think there's only one time that a guy ever write about he went to hell and came back. It's always those times. Then you, you think, what's their testimony? It had nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with God, the God of the Bible. It's something else. And Satan can give counterfeit experiences. So I, I don't really trust it. Do you believe that they did that, or do you think it's. Uh... Yeah, I think they do. I think it's just like people with UFOs and stuff. I probably stepped on a lot of people right there. <laughs> you don't believe in UFOs? <laughs> I think there are unidentified things in the universe. <laughs> but no, have I seen all these people that have seen them? I just find it amazing. You know, they. Uh, they they believe in, a lot of people believe in things they haven't seen like UFOs. On the basis of a testimony of a few people, nut jobs perhaps, and then they get mad at us for believing in a Christ we've never seen based on the testimony of a few people. Just, you know, they can't have it both ways. You know, they can't treat our evidence as foolishness, uh, etc. Yes, ma'am. But does the Bible say anything about cremation? Yeah, that's interesting. I was in a conversation this week with someone about cremation. Uh, if you go to India, the Christians in India are horrified at the idea of cremation. Because of the Hindu culture, the cremation exists because the body is a throwaway container. The body does not matter. Only the soul matters. And all of your life in Hinduism is to escape from your prison of this life, including your body. And your goal, I mean, you know, you knock on the door, you know, if you're a Hindu, you're out witnessing, you knock on the door, so do you know if you die today, you'd be absorbed in the cosmos and lose your personal identity? That's, that's what they have to offer. You know, the atheist, you know, you know if you die today, that's it? <laughs> Yeah, I think we have a whole lot more going for us in the way of uh, purpose and meaning than a lot of those uh, groups do. Um, I've kind of lost my track of thought. I was listening to Mark laugh over there. Cremation. Yeah, cremation. Um, I don't think it's a sin, but I prefer this. 
I prefer that if there is cremation, that there's, the, the ashes are buried rather than scattered. A lot of people uh, scatter them, and of course a lot of people go to cremation because it's cheaper today. I mean, good night. But you know, they'll figure out a way to charge you $8,000 for cremation. Just give them a few years, then they'll have it up there. They'll figure it out. But I prefer that you bury the ashes because of the Christian symbolism of the importance of the body. See, I think we want to do funerals, and when I preach at funerals, I try to interject that, that the body is not a throwaway container. It's so valuable that God raises it from the dead, and that you are going to be a whole person, body and soul. And I think we need to communicate that, and I think, you know, I'm not going to get mad at people over that, you know what I mean? Um, But I, I prefer, if you do cremate, I prefer that you not, but if you do, maybe you can't. Uh, bury because you don't have the funds. Okay, well, go ask the pastor; he'll 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 pay for the funeral. Um, it, bury it, bury the ashes instead of scatter them. I think that's better. It's not that God can't find the DNA. That's not the issue. The issue, the issue is communicating the fact that the bo- that the body is important in Christian theology, in reality. The body's important. And you're going to be you for all eternity. I know you want to be somebody else. But you're going to be you. Yeah. Part of the uh, reason that we chose this topic was because of the encroachment on Orthodox, uh, I'll use the word evangelicalism. The fundamental groups haven't wavered so much. But in the big tent of evangelicalism, which basically takes a orthodox view of Christianity. This doctrine of the eternality of hell has come under question, namely Rob Bell and, and those guys. <coughs> what Pardon you me. sensing is happening out in the great... As you travel and you are in churches, I mean, what's your prediction? Is this something you're going to have to continue to fight these battles on just some of these basic things that... And it goes back to our hermeneutic. This is not a very concise question, but maybe ramble for a minute on, on that concept. Yeah, is there a question in there? Yeah. <laughs> are, you seeing, are you seeing this as a real problem? Is this really, are we making it up? Well, here's the deal. Okay. We are going through in our culture, religious culture right now, the same thing that they went through 100 years ago in the fundamentalist modernist controversy. The modernists rose up you know, and started impacting the church. Liberals in the mainline denominations took over, and they were, you know, didn't believe in Jesus as God, didn't believe the Bible was the word of God, etc. And they took over, and the fundamentalists tried to keep their denominations pure, failed, and had to pull out and start their own stuff. Okay? And of course, the liberals thought they had destroyed the fundamentalists. Didn't happen. Fundamentalists in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s rebuilt and built a lot of churches, did church planning, did a lot of things, and came roaring back to the consternation of the liberals. And the, the uh, and there were books written about the decline in the mainline denominations. I mean, if you know a liberal, classical liberal, you can preach from the newspaper. You can preach a sermon in their churches from the newspaper, and they do. You don't need the Bible. Well, the average thinking person, 
even if they're not saved, will go, why do I need to go to church? Why do I need to give money there? Why do I need to do this and that there? If I, you know, I can just read the newspaper on my own. You know? And so the, the mainline denominations have taken a nosedive uh, in their uh, attendance. So, but we're going through the same thing now. It's only instead of fundamentalist modernism, it's evangelicalism, postmodernism. And I, I, I suspect there'll be a realignment of schools and constituencies, new church planting, denominational structures, independent churches, the whole ball of wax. And 20 years from now, the landscape will look a lot different. But I think there'll be a stronger group because all these issues force us to go back and get the basics down and uh, strengthen ourselves on it. Of course, at a seminary like I am, you know, I have a nice position, dean of the seminary. I can prevent the hiring of any faculty member who doesn't believe the Bible. See, they have to get, they have to come through me. And they're not going to get through me. You know, that's not true at other schools. I mean, there are a lot of good schools like ours. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Uh, but there are some schools where it's just, they waffle. Yeah. And bottom line, the liberals and the media and all that, I don't give a rip what they think about me. A lot of people care about their image. Uh, Harold Horner, who's went home with me with the Lord, he was the head of the Ph.D. department at Dallas Seminary when I was a doctoral student there. One time told of a reporter who came <coughs> to ask him. There was some controversy. I don't remember exactly what it was. But in, in the discussion, she went to SMU. That's the uh, liberal Methodist school in Dallas. Very liberal. Very, very liberal. Would make the John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist, roll over in his grave. And then other schools in the area. She came to Dallas Seminary and talked to him. And in a revealing moment, she said to him, You know, you guys are honest with us. These other guys I talk to are dodging. But you guys really believe the stuff. Uh, I got a call, maybe this is about 10 years ago, I got a call from the Scranton Times newspaper. Uh, they got my name. They're writing an Easter uh, Sunday newspaper article, front page article, on um, what what churches and church groups in the area believe about the resurrection. I mean, that seems like a nice thing. So I did my little interview. She's a Catholic lady. Um, you know, 90% of the people in Scranton are Catholic. Don't know why, but they're Catholic. And so I went down and uh, talked to her about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, witnessed to her. We had an interesting discussion about salvation by works versus salvation by grace through faith. And she's very polite. And she believed in a physical, literal resurrection. In that sense, she was a good, traditional Catholic. Well, the newspaper article came out, and sure enough, I didn't make it to the front page. I was on page two inside, and I was the last guy in the article. That didn't surprise me. But what did surprise me was, because they started with the bishop of Scranton, the Catholic bishop. Well, I understand that. But he waffled on the physical resurrection. It was a spiritual resurrection. And then went to the pastor of the big Methodist church in Scranton, waffled on the resurrection. And they went around all these religious groups in there. And the guy before me, I forget which guy it was, he said, no scholar uh, worth any salt, I'm paraphrasing here, believes in a physical resurrection. 
The next sentence was, Dr. Mike Staller of Baptist Bible Seminary says that all Baptists believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. <laughs> and I was heartbroken. Um, none of those pastors and religious leaders in that article, except me, believed in the physical resurrection of the dead, of Jesus from the dead. Well, we really believe the stuff, and it is, it's everything. I'm all in. Jesus died for my sins. I trusted him to take away my sins in 1974, and I've never gotten over it. Mark? Uh, how how much should the doctrine of hell play into our evangelistic approach to people? Uh, for instance, uh, you know, uh, reading um, John Edwards' uh, "Sinners in the Hand of Angry God" uh, scared the tar out of you. You know, um, so how much should, uh, or do you think we should talk about hell in our evangelistic approach? And I think it should be mentioned. Um, do we, in a sense, quote unquote, scare people into hell? Is that a wrong thing, or should what's that? Yeah, that would be that would be uh, good. Thank you. Yeah, let's scare them into heaven. <laughs> scare them out of hell into heaven. Yeah, don't tell them where you went to school. <laughs> Appalachian Bible College, right? <laughs> um, I think we ought to mention hell in proportion to how it is in the Bible. As a rough, a rough sketch. You know, Jesus doesn't bring up hell in John three. I mean, there's judgment that's brought up. He doesn't specifically talk about hell. John 4, he doesn't bring it up. I mean, there are lots of times when Jesus explains evangelistically things without referencing hell specifically. So, you know, I think there's some uh, elasticity in the way we can do that, flexibility in the way we can do that. And I think we bring it up in proportion to how it is in the Bible. I think if we... If we're rushing to hell every time we share our faith and we end up like the hyper-fundamentalist beating people on the head with the Bible... We've got to be careful with that. So I think, in the, and one of the things you like to do, or what you should do, is help people to ask questions. And so Jesus often helped people with questions. So if you can learn to ask good questions, maybe get them to bring things like that up, it makes it a whole lot easier. Now, one of the ways, perhaps, to get into that fully is prophecy. End times day, end time day stuff. Uh, that 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 attracts some people. It's related to hell, but they don't always get that. But as they get into that, they, they see some things and it grabs them. And I think once they're there and they get that, then the other things may come naturally as you work through. So maybe knock out the purgatory section. You want to knock out one more question? Uh, well, just more of a more of a comment. Um, you know, it's an interesting question that Pastor Mark brought up, and just to give kind of a, a, a tribal evangelism perspective on that, I just thought this was, this was interesting. Um, when I first heard about, you know, okay, so this is how we evangelize to tribal people, you know, New Tribes does a <coughs> chronological Bible approach, so they're getting all the Old Testament stories chronologically and everything, and then, you know, it's all building and building and building up to the death, burial, and resurrection. And 
you know, one of the questions often in class was, well, what if they ask you about it first? You know, what if they ask you, well, I know I'm a sinner, you know, obviously from these stories, I'm not, I do everything wrong, you know, what about, is there a hope, you know? And it's interesting, you know, we're recommended not to actually give them an answer straight off, um, but to let them build their curiosity and build it and, and let the full weight of their sin really hit them before you present the gospel to them. Because if you do that, the impact in their lives um, in correlation with the change in their lives, the change in their actions is huge. Rather than if they just, you know, out of the top of their brain think, okay, yeah, okay, I guess I am wrong. And then you tell them, oh, well, Jesus Christ, you know, he, he's the answer. Then that's, you know, it, it doesn't mean as much as them, to them as if you let them really dwell on their sin and dwell on, oh my goodness, you know, this is me. I'm nothing but a sinner. There's no way I can do anything about it. You know, and I, I think that should play out in our evangelism in, in the States too, you know. Not just rush in to give people the answer of, okay, this is your hope. But to get them to understand, okay, this is sin. This is how bad it really is. And then to also give them the picture of, this is you without a savior. And then to give them the picture of, and this is the hope. Okay, thanks. Um, we tried the chronological approach in my church when we started in 1998 in Scranton. It was a miserable failure. And the reason for that was we didn't have continuity of audience. For that to work, you have to have the same people every week. And we didn't have enough of that for it to get traction. So in America, that's probably harder than it is in a tribal situation. But if you have a chance, it does. The whole plot line of the Bible needs to be there. Because you use the word God today, and you, know, you really need to take a paragraph to explain it. Because what the average person in our culture means by the word God is not what you and I grew up thinking about the word God. So, Francis Schaeffer, I think, is one guy who really helps with that. Well, let's get you guys out of purgatory. Uh, let's put the purgatory uh, slide up. It's number two. Yeah, that's good, right there. You see the purgatorial view. It's not really a view of hell. It's a view of a halfway house. If you die, you can go to heaven in the Catholic understanding. If you're really, really, really goody two-shoes, you know, almost saintly in their scheme. And of course, saint doesn't mean believer in the Catholic system. Or you can go to purgatory, which is you're not quite good enough to make it to heaven. Where you, you're, where there's purgation or purging or cleansing of your sins. And if, and if you commit a moral sin, you know, a sin that doesn't allow for salvation, you end up in hell. That's the Catholic model. The next slide is an intermediate, uh, I'm comparing the intermediate state. You know, from the time of death until the time of, you know, real judgment there would be resurrection in the uh, Catholic view. The only difference is if you look Heaven or purgatory. It's one or the other. You're, uh, you can't have a person go to heaven in a Catholic thing. Their soul would go to heaven if they die, if they're good people. Their bodies are not resurrected till later. So that's no different than the Protestant concept. But 
for the majority of Catholics, they expect to go to purgatory. I think. Now, I've not done a poll. I haven't just walked on the streets in Scranton you know, asking, you expect to go to purgatory or heaven when you die. Um, so there's really not a whole lot of difference between the Catholic and Protestant view. You just take purgatory as an option for the intermediate state. My next slide, I go through some arguments for purgatory. First is the necessity of purgatory. Now, this, these arguments come from Zachary Taylor. Excuse me, Zachary Hayes. Zachary Taylor was the president of the United States. <laughs> Zachary Hayes, a Catholic guy, he refers to it as there's a necess- it's necessary. Why? Because most good people are not good enough for heaven and need help. That's based totally upon a work salvation approach. So when a person dies, they're, they're not 100% clean. And we understand that. We're not 100% clean. We get that cleanness from Jesus, not ourselves. And they're right about that. We're not 100%. But we've, in their mind, you've got to go to a place where you're uh, purgated, where you are, your sins are purged away from you. And there's a, it's a time of punishment. Sometimes it's described in hellish terms, but not always. But there's a time of purgation that takes place. Second, he says analogies to purgatory exist in other religions besides Catholicism. That's one of his arguments. Do you know what I think about that argument? Yeah, that's, that's not an argument. So what? Number three, there's the appeal to church authority and tradition. And it kind of goes like this. We know that purgatory is true because the church told us it was true. Let's make no mistake about what church tradition means here. We know it's true because the church told us it's true. Well, you know what? Your uh, pastor may be a good guy. And your youth pastor is close to a good guy. But you know what? Their approval... On, your, on Bible doctrine doesn't mean a lot. The, the basis of its authority does not come from them. And then four is the apocryphal support. Second Maccabees 12. You guys ever read Second Maccabees? Has, there ever been a, uh, has the pastor ever preached a sermon on Second Maccabees? First Maccabees. There is the third and fourth Maccabees. You know, that Apocrypha, that's, that, that's those Old Testament books that are in the Catholic Bible that are not in the Protestant Bible. That's a problem for Catholics, not for us. You say, well, what do you, how do you say that? Then you go to 2 Maccabees, there's praying for the dead, and there's the whole problem, the issue there of that allowing for a purgatory. How about it? Should we count the Apocrypha in our Bible? It would just give the preacher more to preach on. All those are Old Testament books. They were written before Jesus. And Jesus, in Luke 11, puts his stamp of approval on the Jewish canon of his day, the Jewish collection of Old Testament books of his day that does not include the Apocrypha. 
he talks about from the, in chapter 11, from the blood of Abel. What book of the Bible is that? Genesis. Genesis. To the blood of Zechariah. What book is that? Second Chronicles. Well, that's the Hebrew order of the Old Testament. Starts with Genesis, ends in Second Chronicles. First guy to die, last guy to die in the Old Testament. That's Jesus' way of saying from the old at the beginning to the old at the end. For us today, it's like us saying from Genesis to Revelation. And that does not include the Apocrypha in his day. Later on in Luke 24, Jesus says the same thing. <coughs> or something similar when he talks about the, the law and the Psalms and the prophets. Threefold division of the, the books of the Old Testament that do not include the Apocrypha. And yet he says that's our authority. And so the question I have for my Catholic friends is, aren't you embarrassed that you have a different Old Testament than the one Jesus used? That's how I say that and see if that sparks any conversation. And you ask it as a question. You know, ask it as a question, not as a, you know, looking down in a snooty way. And then uh, there's biblical support that they attempt. You see the two passages there? Let's look at that. Because I know you're going to be astounded and you're going to ask me questions on how to figure that out. In Matthew 12... Thirty-one and thirty-two. Zachary Hayes actually puts this as one of his proof texts. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come which he interprets in neither in this age nor in purgatory to come. And, and my response is, huh? Where does that come from? Do you see purgatory in that text? No, I think that's a, that's wishful thinking there. The other passage is a little bit interesting. 1 Corinthians 3 Verse 11. <clears throat> For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If that which... What he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So, your escaping through the flames is what? In their thinking, purgatory. What do you guys think about that? But what does it actually say? (coughs) 
It may not even be a reference to hell. Just the image of judgment that God's not going to allow everything that you have done to make it into his coming kingdom. Again, there's no automatic way to automatically think that you have purgatory there. Now, do they have other texts? Not really. So, is it a slam dunk for purgatory here? No. And in the end, uh, Zachary Hayes argues in the book that really he believes this because the church has taught this. As a, as a good Baptist, you know what I believe, since I'm a Baptist, you know what I believe about water baptism, right? We had a Presbyterian man come to apply to our PhD program, and we accept Presbyterians. And he came to interview. We had four professors in the oral interview, and came my turn to ask. And I almost always ask this, especially if I have a Presbyterian. And I say, um, since you're a Presbyterian, I would bet that you baptize infants. Is that correct? He says, yes, sir. And he was a Korean. He was very, very polite, that oriental politeness. You know, almost bowing down every time he said something. And then I said, do you have any Bible verses for that? And it was quiet for a minute. And then he goes, no, sir. <laughs> then I said, would it be safe to say that the reason you believe that is your church tradition? And he said, yes, sir. Very polite. Very polite. Protestants have their view of traditions, too, and this is the one Catholic tradition. It's not the only one the Catholics have, but it demonstrates some problems, and I've got a summary of my responses here in the next slide. Run through these quickly. Purgatory is part of a system of works righteousness, man reaching up to God on the basis of what man has done. Number two, the biblical spore is extremely weak. You know, if that's the best they got, I'm not too worried. And three, only the Apocrypha gives hints of teaching compatible with purgatory. And I've already talked to you, why is the Protestant view of the Old Testament right? And it's because we have the same Old Testament that Jesus has. And for the church must be subservient to the Bible. Tradition is not grounds for valid doctrine unless grounded in the Bible. Tradition is not always wrong, but it has to be validated by the Bible. And then five, when details are examined, there is simply no substance. And in the end, that's what Zachary Hayes says. So there's not a whole lot there, but it's what the church has taught. Okay, any last questions? We've got about 10 minutes. Yes, ma'am. Related to the harshness, perceived harshness, related to the perceived harshness of God. Um, what's the best approach to handle the questions about children and hell and people who never had the chance to hear? We've been told that, for instance, how arrogant of us. We've yeah. had every privilege. <coughs> yeah. 
Well, in terms of infant salvation, I happen to hold to the safe position that if a child dies, for example, before um, it has nothing to do with baptism. Uh, I mean, the Catholics have a problem, right? If they, if a child dies unbaptized, they end up, at least in classical Catholic theology, they end up in limbo, which is really a vague place. And they, they assume, at least in the way they used to say it, they're there forever. At least they're not suffering, but they're also not enjoying anything. I mean, it's really kind of, you might as well have annihilation, you know. Uh, the way they do that. But I hold the view that when, if an infant dies, they go to be with the Lord. Now, when is there an age of accountability? Yeah, probably. But I don't know when that would be. Uh, that's something the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about. David does say about his son, you know, I'll go to him, assuming he's with the Lord. Um, there, there are little hints, but there's not a lot about it. But I do hold a safe position. Uh, in fact, um, I was walking in the apartments where I ministered down in Scranton, and there are times when ladies will be walking with their strollers, and they'll, they know I'm one of the church guys that comes and works down there, and they'll come up to me and they go, Father Mike, will you baptize my baby? And I tell them, oh, my church doesn't do that. They're horrified. What if my baby dies? And I tell them, if your baby dies, they'll be safe in the arms of Jesus. That's, I really believe that. And if you, you, know, you really need to believe that if you're going to preach that. And I do believe that. There's some good Christians who don't believe that. Or who sometimes Christians are agnostic about that. Don't really know. Uh, the, it's, it's, it's a hard question, but I, that's what I share on that point. Because the Bible doesn't give a lot of information. So I'm, I'm not sure I can do better than that. Uh, speaking of the age of accountability, do you think they, uh, when a rapture comes, all children that's under the age in that will go immediately to heaven? Yes. You do? I do believe so that. So there will be no kids at all here on this earth after for the thousand years? Well, depending on, each child will be different. Right. You know, when I told you about you fall, Alabama... I think I became accountable that day before to God. I think that day I realized I had offended God. I think before that I did not realize I offended God. I think I became accountable that day. And if I had died or the rapture had happened before I came to Christ, I would have been lost. Now I can't, you know, the, the, there's not a whole lot of detail in the Bible on those things. So we're, there's some inferences and we're making some, some educated guesses about that. And, of course, those who are real strong into, real super strong in election, uh, say the Reformed Presbyterians, you know, they take comfort in the fact that the children of the elect are probably elect. Well, who made that up? That may be, but I don't know that. You know, uh, you know just it's a way for them to have a little comfort for that thought. Uh, now, concerning those who've never heard, that's another separate question. Those who've never heard, we have to get back to the fundamental idea of sin. See, everybody is fundamentally lost. And in, God works in culture sometimes. I mean, some of those harsh passages where he tells them to wipe out the Canaanites, even the children. You know, and when I saw a picture one time, video one time of Osama bin Laden with his 12-year-old son, that passage flooded my mind. 
And I said, I wonder what his son's going to be doing 12 years from now. And how many people he's going to kill. Only God knows that. Uh, and so that, you know, God knew that to leave the Canaanite civilization there would be a detriment to the world and cause the, the hurt of a lot of people. But God's the only one that can figure that out. That's his prerogative. That's not mine. I, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. Now, people, will they take solace in that when you tell them that kind of stuff? Probably not. But those cultures out there, when they haven't heard, Paul's very clear in Romans, those who haven't heard are lost. Otherwise, why have missions? You know, if they become condemned the minute we share the gospel, you know, why have why have missions? You know, Paul's clear, and uh, but the emotional side of that, I'm not sure we'll ever convince anybody. It'll have to be the tug of the Holy Spirit and the truth. Sorry, I can't help more than that. Anybody else? Well, one, it's important to defend the faith, once delivered to the saints. It's a teaching in the Bible, and we need to defend the doctrines of the Bible. It is part of the whole counsel of God, so we're, pastors need to teach the whole counsel of God, and Christians need to learn the whole counsel of God, so it's part of our worldview. So it's necessary for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Or, or, you know, hopefully, some, somebody asked me, is your theology today the same as it was 10 years ago? course they're trying to find out if I've still stayed by the stuff you know and that's true I you know I still believe the book like I did 10 years ago but you know what I hopefully I've grown in the Lord in the last 10 years and there are a few things that I know better than I did then and so my theology in one sense is not the same I've grown and Christians should be that way we should grow and that includes our worldview understanding of all doctrines including this one so at that level um, you know, I think what this ought to do for us is help motivate us. You know, people are worth pursuing for God. All people are worth pursuing for God for two basic reasons. Number one, they are all made in the image of God. That makes them worth pursuing. Uh, and number two, there's the love ethic taught from cover to cover in the Bible. We should love people. And sharing our faith is an act of love. What hell does is add the parameters around that, kind of a circle around that. What happens if we fail? What happens if we fail? And there may, you know, when I'm standing before God at the judgment seat of Christ one day, I may learn some things, some people I should have witnessed to that would have been open, but I didn't take the chance. I was afraid to talk to him or something. Who knows? And I, I hope that I don't have those kind of moments that I have to reflect back upon at the judgment seat of Christ. So it should be a motivator for us in terms of sharing our faith because it puts parameters around the two main things, the reasons why we pursue. Yeah, we don't want them in hell, but they're made in the image of God and, and the love ethic taught from the cover to cover in the Bible. We should uh, be willing to pursue people. 
then there's a drastic consequence if we fail.